Chapters six to eight of Book One of Toilers of the Sea, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part One. Sieur Clubin by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book One: The History of a Bad Reputation. Chapter Six: The Dutch Sloop. Such was the character of Gilliatt. The young women considered him ugly. Ugly he was not. He might perhaps have been called handsome. There was something in his profile of rude but antique grace. In repose it had some resemblance to that of a sculptured Dacian on the Trajan column. His ears were small, delicate, without lobes, and of an admirable form for hearing. Between his eyes he had that proud vertical line which indicates in a man boldness and perseverance. The corners of his mouth were depressed, giving a slight expression of bitterness. His forehead had a calm and noble roundness. The clear pupils of his eyes possessed a steadfast look, although troubled a little with that involuntary movement of the eyelids which fishermen contract from the glitter of the waves. His laugh was boyish and pleasing. No ivory could be of a finer white than his teeth, but exposure to the sun had made him swarthy as a moor. The ocean, the tempest, and the darkness cannot be braved with impunity. At thirty he looked already like a man of forty-five. He wore the sombre mask of the wind and the sea. The people had nicknamed him Malicious Gilead. There is an Indian fable to the effect that one day the god Brahma inquired of the spirit of power, Who is stronger than thee? And the spirit replied, Cunning. A Chinese proverb says, What could not the lion do if he was the monkey also? Gilead was neither the lion nor the monkey, but his actions gave some evidence of the truth of the Chinese proverb and of the Hindu fable. Although only of ordinary height and strength, he was enabled, so inventive and powerful was his dexterity, to lift burdens that might have taxed a giant, and to accomplish feats which would have done credit to an athlete. He had in him something of the power of the gymnast. He used, with equal address, his left hand and his right. He never carried a gun, but was often seen with his net. He spared the birds, but not the fish. Ill luck to these dumb creatures! He was an excellent swimmer. Solitude either develops the mental powers, or renders men dull and vicious. Gilead sometimes presented himself under both these aspects. At times, when his features wore that air of strange surprise already mentioned, he might have been taken for a man of mental powers scarcely superior to the savage. At other moments an indescribable air of penetration lighted up his face. Ancient Chaldea possessed some men of this stamp. At certain times the dullness of the shepherd mind became transparent, and revealed the inspired sage. After all, he was but a poor man, uninstructed save to the extent of reading and writing. It is probable that the condition of his mind was at that limit which separates the dreamer from the thinker. The thinker wills, the dreamer is a passive instrument. 
Solitude sinks deeply into pure natures and modifies them in a certain degree. They become, unconsciously, penetrated with a kind of sacred awe. The shadow in which the mind of Gilead constantly dwelt was composed in almost equal degrees of two elements, both obscure but very different. Within himself all was ignorance and weakness, without infinity and mysterious power. By dint of frequent climbing on the rock, of escalading the rugged cliffs, of going to and fro among the islands in all weathers, of navigating any sort of craft which came to hand, of venturing night and day in difficult channels, he had become, without taking count of his other advantages, and merely in following his fancy and pleasure, a seaman of extraordinary skill. He was a born pilot. The true pilot is the man who navigates the bed of the ocean even more than its surface. The waves of the sea are an external problem, continually modified by the submarine conditions of the waters in which the vessel is making her way. To see Gilliatt guiding his craft among the reefs and shallows of the Norman archipelago, one might have fancied that he carried in his head a plan of the bottom of the sea. He was familiar with it all, and feared nothing. He was better acquainted with the boys in the channel than the cormorants who make them their resting-places. The almost imperceptible differences which distinguish the four upright boys of the Creux, Aligonde, the Tremy, and the Sardrette were perfectly visible and clear to him, even in misty weather. He hesitated neither at the oval, apple-headed boy of Enfray, nor at the triple iron point of the Russe, nor at the white ball of the Corbette, nor at the black ball of Longue-Pierre, and there was no fear of his confounding the cross of Goubeau with the sword planted in earth at La Platte, nor the hammer-shaped boy of the Barbes with the curl-shaped boy of the Moulinet. His rare skill in seamanship showed itself in a striking manner one day at Guernsey, on the occasion of one of those sea tournaments which are called regattas. The feat to be performed was to navigate alone a boat with four sails from Saint-Samson to the Isle of Erm at one league distance, and to bring the boat back from Erm to Saint-Samson to manage without assistance a boat with four sails is a feat which every fisherman is equal to and the difficulty seemed little but there was a condition which rendered it far from simple the boat to begin with was one of those large and heavy sloops of bygone times which the sailors of the last century knew by the name of dutch belly boats this ancient style of flat, pot-bellied craft, carrying on the larboard and starboard sides, in compensation for the want of a keel, two wings, which lowered themselves, sometimes the one, sometimes the other, according to the wind, may occasionally be met with still at sea. In the second place there was the return from Erm, a journey which was rendered more difficult by a heavy ballasting of stones. The conditions were to go empty, but to return loaded. The sloop was the prize of the contest. It was dedicated beforehand to the winner. This Dutch belly-boat had been employed as a pilot-boat. The pilot who had rigged and worked it for twenty years was the most robust of all the sailors of the channel. When he died, no one had been found capable of managing the sloop, and it was, in consequence, determined to make it the prize of the regatta.
The sloop, though not decked, had some sea qualities, and was a tempting prize for a skilful sailor. Her mast was somewhat forward, which increased the motive power of her sails, besides having the advantage of not being in the way of her pilot. It was a strong-built vessel, heavy but roomy, and taking the open sea well, in fact a good serviceable craft. There was eager anxiety for the prize. The task was a rough one, but the reward of success was worth having. Seven or eight fishermen, among the most vigorous of the island, presented themselves. One by one they essayed, but not one could succeed in reaching Erm. The last one who tried his skill was known for having crossed, in a rowing-boat, the terrible narrow sea between Sark and Breck Oo. Sweating with his exertions, he brought back the sloop and said, "'It is impossible!' Gilliatt then entered the bark, seized first of all the oar, then the mainsail, and pushed out to sea. Then, without either making fast the boom, which would have been imprudent, or letting it go, which kept the sail under his direction, and leaving the boom to move with the wind without drifting, he held the tiller with his left hand. In three-quarters of an hour he was at home. Three hours later, although a strong breeze had sprung up and was blowing across the roads, the sloop, guided by Gilliatt, returned to Saint-Sampson with its load of stones. He had, with an extravagant display of his resources, even added to the cargo the little bronze cannon at Erm, which the people were in the habit of firing off on the 5th of November, by way of rejoicing over the death of Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes, by the way, had been dead two hundred and sixty years, a remarkably long period of rejoicing. Gilliatt, thus burdened and encumbered, although he had the Guy Fawkes Day cannon in the boat and the south wind in his sails, steered, or rather brought back, the heavy craft to Saint-Sampson. Seeing which, Mess Lettieri exclaimed, "'There's a bold sailor for you!' And he held out his hand to Gilliatt. We shall have occasion to speak again of Mess Lettieri. The sloop was awarded to Gilliatt. This adventure detracted nothing from his evil reputation. Several persons declared that the feat was not at all astonishing, for that Gilliatt had concealed in the boat a branch of wild meddler. But this could not be proved. From that day forward, Gilliatt navigated no boat except the old sloop. In this heavy craft he went on his fishing avocation. He kept it at anchor in the excellent little shelter which he had all to himself, under the very wall of his house of the Bou de la Rue. At nightfall he cast his nets over his shoulder, traversed his little garden, climbed over the parapet of dry stone, stepped lightly from rock to rock, and, jumping into the sloop, pushed out to sea. He brought home heavy takes of fish, but people said that his meddler branch was always hanging up in the boat. No one had ever seen this branch, but everyone believed in its existence. When he had more fish than he wanted, he did not sell it, but gave it away. The poor people took his gift, but were little grateful, for they knew the secret of his meddler branch. Such devices cannot be permitted. It is unlawful to trick the sea out of its treasures. He was a fisherman, but he was something else. He had, by instinct or for amusement, acquired a knowledge of three or four trades. He was a carpenter, worker in iron, wheelwright, boat-corker, 
and to some extent an engineer. No one could mend a broken wheel better than he could. He manufactured, in a fashion of his own, all the things which fishermen use. In a corner of the Bout de la Rue he had a small forge and an anvil, and the sloop having but one anchor, he had succeeded, without help, in making another. The anchor was excellent. The ring had the necessary strength, and Gilliatt, although entirely uninstructed in this branch of the smith's art, had found the exact dimensions of the stock for preventing the overbalancing of the fluke ends. He had patiently replaced all the nails in the planks by rivets, which rendered rust in the holes impossible. In this way he had much improved the sea-going qualities of the sloop. He employed it sometimes, when he took a fancy to spend a month or two in some solitary islet, like Chusey or the Casquet. People remarked, "'Aye, aye, Gilead is away!' But this was a circumstance which nobody regretted. Chapter 7. A Fit Tenant for a Haunted House Gilead was a man of dreams, hence his daring, hence also his timidity. He had ideas on many things which were peculiarly his own. There was in his character, perhaps, something of the visionary and the transcendentalist. Hallucinations may haunt the poor peasant like Martin, no less than the king like Henry the Fourth. There are times when the unknown reveals itself in a mysterious way to the spirit of man. A sudden rent in the veil of darkness will make manifest things hitherto unseen, and then close again upon the mysteries within. Such visions have occasionally the power to effect a transfiguration in those whom they visit. They convert a poor camel-driver into a Mahomet, a peasant girl tending her coats into a Joan of Arc. Solitude generates a certain amount of sublime exaltation. It is like the smoke, arising from the burning bush. A mysterious lucidity of mind results, which converts the student into a seer, and the poet into a prophet. Herein we find a key to the mysteries of Horeb, Kedron, Ombos, to the intoxication of Castilian laurels, the revelations of the month Bucion. Hence, too, we have Pelea at Dodona, Femino at Delphos, Trophonius in Lebedea, Ezekiel on the Chabar, and Jerome in the Thetail. More frequently, this visionary state overwhelms and stupefies its victim. There is such a thing as a divine besottedness. The Hindu fakir bears about with him the burden of his vision, as the cretin his goiter. Luther, holding converse with devils in his garret at Wittenberg, Pascal, shutting out the view of the infernal regions with the screen of his cabinet, the African obi conversing with the white-faced god Bossum, are each and all the same phenomenon, diversely interpreted by the minds in which they manifest themselves according to their capacity and power. Luther and Pascal were grand, and are grand still. The Obi is simply a poor, half-witted creature. Gilead was neither so exalted nor so low. He was a dreamer, nothing more. Nature presented itself to him under a somewhat strange aspect. Just as he had often found in the perfectly limpid water of the sea strange creatures of considerable size and of various shapes, of the Medusa genus, 
of the medusa genus which out of the water bore a resemblance to soft crystal and which cast again into the sea became lost to sight in that medium by reason of their identity in transparency and colour so he imagined that other transparencies similar to these almost invisible denizens of the ocean might probably inhabit the air around us the birds are scarcely inhabitants of the air but rather amphibious creatures passing much of their lives upon the earth gilliatt could not believe the air a mere desert he used to say since the water is filled with life why not the atmosphere creatures colourless and transparent like the air would escape from our observation what proof have we that there are no such creatures analogy indicates that the liquid fields of air must have their swimming habitants even as the waters of the deep these aerial fish would of course be diaphanous a provision of their wise creator for our sakes as well as their own allowing the light to pass through their forms casting no shadow having no defined outline they would necessarily remain unknown to us and beyond the grasp of human sense gilliatt indulged the wild fancy that if it were possible to exhaust the earth of its atmosphere or if we could fish the air as we fish the depths of the sea we should discover the existence of a multitude of strange animals and then he would add in his reverie many things would be made clear reverie which is thought in its nebulous state borders closely upon the land of sleep by which it is bounded as by a natural frontier the discovery of a new world in the form of an atmosphere filled with transparent creatures would be the beginning of a knowledge of the vast unknown but beyond opens up the illimitable domain of the possible teeming with yet other beings and characterized by other phenomena all this would be nothing supernatural but merely the occult continuation of the infinite variety of creation in the midst of that laborious idleness which was the chief feature in his existence gilliatt was singularly observant he even carried his observations into the domain of sleep sleep has a close relation with the possible which we call also the invraisemblable the world of sleep has an existence of its own night-time regarded as a separate sphere of creation is a universe in itself the material nature of man upon which philosophers tell us that a column of air forty-five miles in height continually presses is wearied out at night sinks into lassitude lies down and finds repose the eyes of the flesh are closed but in that drooping head less inactive than is supposed other eyes are opened the unknown reveals itself the shadow existences of the invisible world become more akin to man whether it be that there is a real communication or whether things far off in the unfathomable abyss are mysteriously brought nearer it seems as if the impalpable creatures inhabiting space come then to contemplate our natures curious to comprehend the denizens of the earth some phantom creation ascends or descends to walk beside us in the dim twilight some existence altogether different from our own composed partly of human consciousness partly of something else 
quits his fellows and returns again after presenting himself for a moment to our inward sight and the sleeper not wholly slumbering not yet entirely conscious beholds around him strange manifestations of life pale spectres terrible or smiling dismal phantoms uncouth masks unknown faces hydra-headed monsters undefined shapes reflections of moonlight where there is no moon vague fragments of monstrous forms all these things which come and go in the troubled atmosphere of sleep and to which men give the name of dreams are in truth only realities invisible to those who walk about the daylight world the dream world is the aquarium of night so at least thought gilead chapter eight the guildholm ur seat the curious visitor in these days would seek in vain in the little bay of Umet for the house in which Gilead lived, or for his garden, or the creek in which he sheltered the Dutch sloop. The Bout de la Rue no longer exists. Even the little peninsula on which his house stood has vanished, levelled by the pickaxe of the quarryman, and carried away, cartload by cartload, by dealers in rock and granite. It must be sought now in the churches, the palaces, and the keys of a great city. All that ridge of rocks has been long ago conveyed to London. These long lines of broken cliffs in the sea, with their frequent gaps and crevices, are like miniature chains of mountains. They strike the eye with the impression which a giant may be supposed to have in contemplating the Cordilleras. In the language of the country, they are called bonks. These bonks vary considerably in form. Some resemble a long spine, of which each rock forms one of the vertebrae. Some are like the backbone of a fish, while some bear an odd resemblance to a crocodile in the act of drinking. At the extremity of the ridge on which the Boudalaru was situate was a large rock which the fishing people of Umet called the Beast's Horn. This rock, a sort of pyramid, resembled, though less in height, the pinnacle of Jersey. At high water the sea divided it from the ridge, and the horn stood alone. At low water it was approached by an isthmus of rocks. The remarkable feature of this beast's horn was a sort of natural seat on the side next the sea, hollowed out by the water and polished by the rains. The seat, however, was a treacherous one. The stranger was insensibly attracted to it by the beauty of the prospect, as the Guernsey folks said. Something detained him there in spite of himself, for there is a charm in a wide view the seat seemed to offer itself for his convenience it formed a sort of niche in the peaked facade of the rock to climb up to it was easy for the sea which had fashioned it out of its rocky base had also cast beneath it at convenient distances a kind of natural stairs composed of flat stones the perilous abyss is full of these snares beware therefore of its proffered aids the spot was tempting the stranger mounted and sat down there he found himself at his ease for his seat he had the granite rounded and hollowed out by the foam for supports two rocky elbows which seemed made expressly for him 
against his back the high vertical wall of rock which he looked up to and admired without thinking of the impossibility of scaling it nothing could be more simple than to fall into reverie in that convenient resting-place all around spread the wide sea far off the ships were seen passing to and fro it was possible to follow a sail with the eye till it sank in the horizon beyond the casquet the stranger was entranced he looked around enjoying the beauty of the scene and the light touch of wind and wave there is a sort of bat found at cayenne which has the power of fanning people to sleep in the shade with a gentle beating of its dusky wings like this strange creature the wind wanders about alternately ravaging or lulling into security so the stranger would continue contemplating the sea listening for a movement in the air and yielding himself up to dreamy indolence when the eyes are satiated with light and beauty it is a luxury to close them for a while suddenly the loiterer would arouse but it was too late the sea had crept up step by step the waters surrounded the rock the stranger had been lured on to his death a terrible rock was this in a rising sea the tide gathers at first insensibly then with violence when it touches the rocks a sudden wrath seems to possess it and it foams swimming is difficult in the breakers excellent swimmers have been lost at the horn of the Bude de la rue in certain places and at certain periods the aspect of the sea is dangerous fatal as at times is the glance of a woman very old inhabitants of guernsey used to call this niche fashioned in the rock by the waves guildholm ur seat or kidamur a celtic word say some authorities which those who understand celtic cannot interpret and which all who understand french can qui dormeur he who sleeps must die such is the country folk's translation the reader may choose between the translation qui dormeur and that given in eighteen nineteen i believe in the armorican by m atanas according to this learned celtic scholar guildholm ur signifies the resting-place of birds there is at aurigny another seat of this kind called the monk's chair so well sculptured by the waves and with steps of rock so conveniently placed that it might be said that the sea politely sets a footstool for those who rest there in the open sea at high water the guildholm ur was no longer visible the water covered it entirely the guildholm ur was a neighbour of the bout de la rue Gilead knew it well, and often seated himself there. Was it his meditating place? No. We have already said he did not meditate, but dream. The sea, however, never entrapped him there. End of chapter 8 and book 1 Reading by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com